Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 28. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jarius by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians. And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. You can hear me all right. We discovered this morning that these uh, headpieces are created predominantly, I think, for men with big heads, like my husband. So um, there's been a lot of adjusting, but I think we're there now. Um, Happy Mother's Day. Um, It's great to be with you. If you don't know me, my name's Holly. Um, So I'm a deacon here at chapel, and I also head up the women's ministry team. And in fact, if you are a woman here this morning, we have our first in-person event post-pandemic coming up. So the afternoon of May the 21st, um, yeah, the 21st of May, afternoon at two o'clock, we'll be having an event. So keep an eye out, there'll be details coming about that. But um, this morning, it's all about women celebrating motherhood and all aspects of womanhood. But this message is not just for women, it's for all of us. And I say that quite intentionally because as I go on, you're going to feel tempted, maybe some of you, to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I feel like I'm getting a bit of feedback, but I hope you're all right. Is it my earring? I'm just going to take my earring off, guys. I don't need to look good for you. Here we go. That's better. Um, Yeah, some of you might feel tempted at points to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, And especially if you're male, you might switch off a little bit because I'm going to be using words like periods and menstrual blood and menopause quite a lot. You don't often hear that up on a stage like this, but I am. Now, some people suggested to me a whole host of pretty inappropriate jokes to kind of break the ice right now, but you'll be pleased that I've opted not to use any of those because I figure we can deal with this. If we can unmask pornography, which Andy did for us just a few months ago, and we can talk about periods, they're not even sinful but they do have a message, and it's a message for all of us. Women's bodies are timepieces. 
they have a story that they tell to humanity that in our rush to kind of avoid mess or inconvenience or pain, we often miss in the modern world. They have rhythms and processes built into them that can be difficult to navigate at times, but aren't without design or purpose. Now, it might seem a little bit odd to think that God cares about a woman's menstrual well-being. I appreciate that. But I'm glad that he does, because if he can name every hair that's on my head, and I cut my hair without that much thought, then I want him with me in some of the most intimate and significant processes that my body goes through. See, women, we have a profoundly personal and sometimes complicated relationship with menstrual blood. It might make some of you squirm a little bit, but to us, this is something we're deeply, profoundly familiar with in a world that often pretends that it doesn't exist. See, as young teenagers, we await that moment when our period starts and our childhood begins to fade and we're kind of beckoned into this new season of life of growing independence and responsibility. And we kind of clean, we absorb, we pray we don't leak. For some of us, the blood doesn't come and that raises anxiety about what that might mean for our future and choices that we might have. For some of us, the blood never stops coming and that raises other anxieties. It never pauses to enable a baby to be formed. And then one day, just as it started, it will begin to stop. And with rushes of heat and anxious thoughts and maybe sleepless nights, our periods will stop and we'll be beckoned into yet another season. And some of us will realize unconsciously just how significantly we had coupled our feminine identity with the presence of blood. Now, the unnamed bleeding woman that you heard about, read about, hopefully you caught that just now, she did not have a normal period. She had been in a constant state of menstruation for the best part of 12 years. And I think we can assume that that would have taken quite a toll on her physically. I think it's reasonable that she might have been weak. She was probably iron deficient. But I think it took an even greater toll on her mentally. Now, I remember after I had my second child, Isaac, I returned to work part-time in a highly corporate environment. And in one of the first few weeks, I was sat in this uh, meeting and it overran, it went on forever. And I was wearing this cream dress. Some of you may know where I'm going with this. And believe me, I also cannot believe that I'm telling you this story. Um, but after the meeting ended, um, I got up to leave and this senior partner came up to me and she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, Holly, just put your coat on and go to the toilet. And my heart just sank. See, I'd recently stopped breastfeeding my son and my periods had restarted and clearly I had really misjudged things. So um, after a rather awkward conversation with my head of department, I was allowed to go back home and, and change. I felt like my period had shunned and shamed me. I felt so embarrassed. Yet this was nothing compared with what this woman was experiencing. See, this woman, like all Jews, was still under the Levitical requirements of the law. And that covered all aspects of life, but it also included periods. And in Leviticus 15 to 19, it unpacks some of the rules around that. I'm not going to read all of that because it's a bit long, but I'm going to read you a section. So verse 15, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her bloody body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. 
and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening, and everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean, and whoever touches her bed shall wash his hands, his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lays shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanliness. And it goes on. Now, the unnamed bleeding woman had been in that state and the eyes of the law of unclean for the best part of 12 years. She couldn't be touched, she couldn't have sex, she couldn't enter the temple, she couldn't make a sin offering. She was essentially ostracized from her community and family for the best part of 624 weeks. She certainly couldn't touch Jesus' robe, a rabbi's robe, which she did in this story. In desperation, she has spent all that she had seeking help to alleviate this condition, and it's only become worse. The loneliness and despair she must have met, felt, must have been unbearable. But there's hope, and we're going to get to that this morning. I'm going to get to it through three points. The first one is going to take us by far the longest, so don't panic when I'm working on that. And that is the message of menstrual blood. And the second is the compassion of God to heal, and then the compassion of God to encourage. So let's start by dwelling for a little while on blood, because whilst none of you will probably choose to talk about this over lunch later, the Bible actually has quite a lot to say about blood, even menstrual blood. See, in the age of female empowerment, which I'm sure we all agree is great, we can focus so much on how women can add to and better the world through their amazing minds and intellect, that in order to do that, we women can sometimes suppress our physicality. Probably because, either historically or through personal experience, it's been used in the past to either humiliate or undermine us. But what if our female physicality is not something to overcome, but another asset that we bring to the table? What if our menstrual cycle is about more than just having a baby, as significant as that is? If not, it seems a little bit inefficient. You know, women have an average of 450 periods in their lifetime, compared with just 2.4 children. Did you know the only other animal in the world that has a period other than humans is a weird bat? All others reabsorb their womb lining, have a different process. What if God created it this way on purpose? The heavens declare the glory of God. What if our monthly blood flow does the same? That changes a bit things a bit, doesn't it? What if this regular announcement needs to be heard, not just by women, but by all of us? Now, before you think I've gone totally insane and start tweeting that, like, Holly's completely lost the plot, um, let me unpack this a little bit more. So we're going to talk about the message of menstrual blood. So when we read the laws in Leviticus, and they talked about being clean and unclean, not talking about hygiene, whether you're smelly or need a shower, 
but rather it's talking about the holiness of God. So kardosh, the word used to describe God's holiness, essentially means to be distinct, unique, or set apart for a purpose. To become unclean wasn't necessarily to be in sin, but rather it was to enter a state which didn't fit with the unique, distinct nature of God. Now, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project fame, he unpacks this in the context of sexual discharges, which probably makes you feel even more uncomfortable than talking about periods. So let's dwell on that for a moment. So this really helps us when we think about periods. He describes about how sexual discharges are really unique, sacred, holy um, in the eyes of God, because he says that they're unique fluids in the body that are associated with the purpose of creating life. And God tells us that life is holy and that, and it's sacred and that God is the author of life. So when we leak these fluids in a way not associated with that purpose, we become unclean. So if we think about periods, when we have a period, it signifies that an egg hasn't been fertilized, it hasn't gone into the womb lining, a baby isn't going to be born. Don't worry, I'm not going any further with the biology lesson than that. Viewing that with our eyes here in the Western culture, that can sound really weird. I get that. But to the Israelites, this would have been a symbol of the reality of their mortality and the presence of death that had been with them since the fall in Genesis. It wasn't always wrong to be unclean, although a lot of uncleanliness did come from being sinful. But it was wrong to enter God's presence in that state, because symbolically you were bringing um, the presence of death, the symbolic presence of death, into the author, the presence of the author of life. Now, the Jews observed lots of rules and they made sacrifices, we heard about some of them, to try and stay clean, to become clean again. But the problem was, they had to keep being redone. It was really easy to become unclean because it didn't just cover bad things, it covered good things like food and sex and geckos, and it even included periods. What was the point of all this hard work? Well, it wasn't to make the Jews self-righteous or driven by willpower or legalistic. Quite the opposite. It was meant to open the eyes of God's people to the pervasive and undeniable nature of the depths of our brokenness and just how marked we are by death that clings to and corrupts every aspect of God's design. It's intended to make us see just how unlike God's holiness we are on our own. Periods may not be sinful, but the symbol of leaking lifeblood is meant to remind us why we are so unescapably dogged by mortality and death, sin. See, Isaiah 64.4 describes sin as menstrual rags, not the disease that the Bible hates, leprosy, not the detestable things that swarm on the ground that Leviticus talks about, period rags. The Hebrew word literally means the bodily fluids from a woman's menstrual cycle. I think any woman here can attest that a period stain can be tricky to get rid of. But I think there's more to this description than the trickiness of the stain, as opposed to any other blood stain or Sharpie pens or grease stains. And it's not just that we feel socially weird or disgusted by it. It's that it harks all the way back to the very beginning of sin entering the world. 
See, way back in the Garden of Eden, Eve, then Adam, doubted God's character and ate from the forbidden tree, and sin entered humankind. And in Genesis 3, God puts a um, curse on the snake and the man and the woman, but he doesn't do that without hope and a plan for redemption. He says that through the seed of the woman would come someone who will crush the head of the snake, Satan. And so when we look at the Old Testament, all the way through physical childbearing is an essential part of bringing about God's rescue plan. And God goes to crazy lengths to make sure that that lineage to Jesus is maintained. He enables Sarah and others, barren old women, to be able to have children until he is ready for his rescue plan to come about. So back in that time, in the Jewish time of when we're reading Leviticus, every period was a reminder that the Savior was not yet here, that God's timing was not yet, and that their struggle under the consequences of their sin continued. Our, menstru- our sin is like a menstrual garment. It's disgusting to smell and behold, seemingly impossible to clean, and it's a reminder of our regret and guilt. To the Jews, every period was a sign that hope had not yet come. Uncleanliness was also not isolated to one person. It spread by touch. We've read about that, well, we've heard about that in the rules. We see it when Eve passed the apple to Adam. We see it today in mob mentality. We see it when we spend lots of time in supposed bad company and our conscience becomes slightly less conscientious. I know I read the news and I see about all the horrific things going on in the world and suddenly I'm more inclined to have that good gossip with my friend over coffee. Does it really matter in comparison? See, our sin is an unescapable menstrual rag. And the Old Testament sought to illustrate this. In the rules around periods, it wasn't just for women, it was for everybody who touched the woman too. The husbands couldn't touch or have sex with their wife for essentially a week in every month. And she would be pretty out of action because everything she kind of touched or sat on would become unclean. So someone else would kind of have to step in and pick up that work that she couldn't do. Periods were a much more public affair before the advent of the pill and tampons. Every month, the woman had a period and it announced to her community, you are all sinful, you all need rescuing. How does this connect to the bleeding woman? And does this talk get a little bit more upbeat? Yes, it does, don't worry, we're getting there. So the bleeding woman, she doesn't have a normal period, right? She has been in a constant state of bleeding, it doesn't stop. And I think that more accurately depicts the cleanliness of all our hearts, because we're not unclean just for one week out of every month. This woman has been ceremonially unclean for 12 years. But without Jesus, she has been morally and spiritually unclean for far, far longer than that. She has spent all she has trying to get better. She's exhausted every option that she has. But then Jesus comes. Jesus is the perfect clean one who's holy and pure beyond our mind's comprehension. Jesus doesn't need to preserve his purity. He is so glorious that sin doesn't corrupt him like us. He doesn't need to go out and make a sin offering on his own behalf. 
In fact, Jesus counters and overcomes sin with a different contagion, the contagion of forgiveness and holiness. See, the woman, when she touches his garment, he doesn't become unclean. Rather, she becomes clean. See, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, he came voluntarily into our uncleanliness and he doesn't bring condemnation. He brings wholeness and contagious holiness. And this is a foreshadow of what he'll go on to do in the Gospels at the cross, when through his own blood, he created a way to free us all from spiritual and moral uncleanliness forever. And at that moment, when Jesus died on the cross and then later rose again from death, our periods, women, changed forever. They changed to be from like a sign of guilt to a moment of wonder. Those are not words you expect me to say. Our periods are a moment of wonder. They are a trigger every month to glorify God, that he came in full humanity, full divinity, and wonderful love. My period no longer isolates me. It doesn't ostracize me because Jesus paid the price. I can experience that with grace in the same way many aspects of the law. It's no longer a sign of a nation longing for a Messiah to be born, but a reminder that he was A long time ago, a young woman skipped a period and her body grew a tiny baby. He was born fully man and fully God and he won the victory for all of humanity over sin and death for eternity. When I started my period as a teenager, I was told to celebrate this moment because now I can have children. Well... Fertility is a bit more complicated than that, we find out as we grow up, hey? And I'm sure some of you know that a lot more keenly than I do. And perhaps your monthly blood flow is a bit like salt in wounds. Yes, periods can help us to have children in some cases. But it's about more than that. There is a bigger vision to sell to our daughters than than just that. And it's a story of hope and redemption and the goodness of a saviour. Does explaining that sound odd? Yes, it does. Is she going to roll her eyes and be embarrassed? You bet she will. You probably will too. But do you know what? I don't think these conversations are ever a squirm-free affair. And I would rather my daughter smirk in embarrassment as I talk to her about the goodness of God than if I give her a purely half-baked truth that now she can go have kids. Or maybe it will just be a bit pointless. As women, one day our periods will stop and we'll be beckoned into a new season of life. It's an indication that we're getting older. And as one flesh, that's an indication for the husband as much as it is for the wife in marriage. But that doesn't mean that our significance or our worship declines. We talked a lot about periods and in our culture where we kind of worship at the altar of age-defying face cream, we can sometimes miss the purpose of other stages of life. I think that we often think that our prime years are our younger years, but I'm not sure that the Bible shares that perspective. Titus 2 is certainly clear that as we get older, in some aspects, our effectiveness and opportunities increase. We can help those who haven't yet learnt how to spiritually parent others. The famous verse in Proverbs 16.31 describes that, gray hair that we try and keep well dyed as a crown of, um, what do they call it? A crown of glory, that's it. 
the age, I think, of a faithful believer is something to wear with dignity. If Moses and Abraham and Sarah and Anna and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, are anything to go by, God loves to use those who are older in age too. And as we age, sometimes the ways in which we serve may have to change due to declining energy or health. But we're never past our prime because our prime is not dependent on our own stamina or ability or age. It's dependent on his work at work within us because he is our prime. Before we move on, I want to ask you, do you know just how unclean, unholy, and in need you are without Jesus? And do you know just how incredible it is that he came to save us? Our next point is the compassion of Jesus to heal. Because this narrative doesn't just talk of the glory of God over sin. It talks about the compassion and gentle care of Jesus. The king of the universe cares about our physical well-being. He heals this woman's medical condition. He goes on to raise Jarius' daughter from the dead and then instructs her parents to um, cook a meal for her. God cares about our physical well-being in a way only a God who has physically walked this earth can do. Jesus has experienced pain. He's experienced social exclusion. He knows what that is like. And his experience will far eclipse that of this woman's as he goes on to the cross. For this reason, love, when the woman touches his robe, Jesus doesn't does allow this event to interrupt his journey to Jairus' dying daughter. He doesn't react with distaste or annoyance. This woman isn't an inconvenience to him, but instead he immediately turned about, reacting with time and grace. It's likely, given this woman's condition, that it might have been obvious from stained clothing, she's clearly just not that wealthy to have lots of different outfits to keep changing into, We might have felt a bit awkward about it, embarrassed, disgusted even. But Jesus doesn't treat her as any differently to anybody else who approaches him. And that's because the ceremonial uncleanliness of her was no less grotesque to him than the moral uncleanliness that was in the hearts of every single person in the crowd around her. See, Jesus in his humanity, had rubbed constantly against the sludge of sin. It's why he came to rescue us. When he shows compassion to this woman, it goes beyond cultural stigmas. But when he shows us compassion, it's no less glorious because our hearts are no less ugly than this woman's condition. They're just more easily hidden in the crowd. Do you know the compassion of Jesus to heal and to cleanse our sin? This side of the cross, do you move away from those who seem unclean? Or would you compassionately draw near like Jesus did? A final point is the compassion of Jesus to encourage. See, this narrative also encourages us that God will respond to our faith even when it's not perfect. This woman appears to have placed her hope in an object in his garment rather than purely in his person. And Jesus didn't wait for her faith to become perfect or 
thoroughly theologically sound. He doesn't start unpacking all the scripture with her immediately. Instead, he encourages and praises her for the faith that she did have. One trustworthy Bible scholar wrote, Is it not marvelous that Jesus, in speaking to this woman, says nothing of his own power and love, the root cause of her present state of well-being, but makes special mention of that from which, apart from him, she would neither have possessed nor have been able to exercise? As we hold out our dented, oddly shaped mustard seeds of faith, he will never toss them away, but he wants to partner with us to water them, to grow them into mighty oaks that he longs for us to shade under. This scholar argues that by stipulating your faith has made you well, Jesus was gently growing and shaping this woman's faith to see that it was his personal response to her personal faith that had cured her rather than the kind of garment being special. I don't think this side of eternity, any of us can offer perfect faith to God. Whether we are beset with doubts or we have this parallel reliance on self or money or comfort. But if your faith is sincere, Jesus will never turn you away. But God longs to partner with you to grow you and gently mature you through his word and his spirit. How are your mustard seeds of faith doing? Are they in your back pocket? Or have you got them out ready to plant them and grow and to see what God will do? I often um, wonder when I read this um, passage of this woman, how often she spoke to people during those 12 years. It must have been difficult with our email and phones like we have now. People wouldn't want to touch her and become unclean. How often people spoke to her. When Jesus looks about for who's touched him, she came in fear and trembling. Perhaps she expected a reprimand, a reprimand for having touched him when she wasn't meant to. She falls down before him in awe. How does Jesus respond? Well, after 12 years of exclusion, he responds with the word of the most joyful inclusion. He calls her daughter. Without Jesus, we, male and female, all of us, are like the bleeding woman. We're continually unworthy to have fellowship with God. We're cut off by the consequences of our sin. But through Jesus, we're called children of God. We're not just invited into a community, but into the very heart of his family. And though we stand before him, drenched in scarlet sins like a period rags, he stands with us clothed in a robe dripped in blood, as Revelation 19 describes. His own blood that doesn't stain like ours, but washes us white as snow. Jesus goes on from this event to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, and he lovingly calls her little girl. She was uh, 12 years old. She was a sweet child. She had crowds of people weeping at her death when, as Jesus arrives, She has a father who would do anything to try and help her on her behalf. When the bleeding woman approaches Jesus, she also is in a crowd, but the crowd are indifferent to her. She has a distasteful and shameful disease, and there's nobody to speak on her behalf. And yet, just as lovingly, Jesus calls her daughter. As we grow, we never outgrow the need for a savior or a father 
And God is our perfect rescuing father. Whoever you are, whatever state you are in, he calls you son and daughter. As I, as um, the band come up, if they want to, I'm going to pray briefly. Um, as the band play, I'm going to join the worship team at the, uh, not the worship team, the prayer team. Oh, I'm not going to worship. I can't sing from a toffee. <laughs> Please to know. I'm going to join the prayer team at the side here. Um, I'd really encourage you to come forward for prayer. I feel like some of us here, perhaps for the first time or perhaps again, have just been reminded of just how pervasive and undeniable and dirty our hearts are without Jesus. And we need to be reminded that he is the great clean one that covers us with his grace again. We need to be reminded that we are sons and daughters. I think there might be women here too who have been so consumed with the wonderful, important role of motherhood that we've allowed that to overshadow our identity as daughter. And we need to be reminded of that again today. And I also want to encourage you to come forward because I don't think many other people will say this from a pulpit, but to come forward for prayer about your menstrual cycle. Because, you know, statistically in this room here today, 25% of the people in this room are having a period. And 15% are currently going through the menopause. These are big, significant things that happen in a woman's life. And although they're normal, they're not always easy to navigate. for you to have an opportunity for prayer for that today. Because prayer, it's not just for the socially normal problems. It's for all of life. So come forward, come pray. We'll be sensitive and gentle um, if that's you. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you call us sons and daughters. Thank you that we are never too shameful or sinful or unclean for you. Thank you that you welcome us into the very heart of your family. And I thank you that even though we offer you dented, oddly shaped mustard seeds of faith, Lord, that you don't toss them away, but you want to partner with us. I thank you that you sent your son to die for us, Lord, and that his blood washes us clean. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.